Greetings and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to tackle the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. Now Ephesians chapter 5 sets up, well, it sets up the idea of the next couple chapters, really. And that idea is that we need to be living in the light of Christ. He's already talked to us about living as children of light. Now he's going to talk about what that looks like in general. And then as we live out our relationships, whether that be a marriage relationship, relationship between parent and child, uh, in the context of that day and age, relationship between slave and master, and then goes on from there. Although we've delved into the sixth chapter now, so let me stop and say, let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then let's turn our attention to chapter 5. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to you thanking you for your word, thanking you that you have preserved the text of the Bible, that we may study it, that it has guided the faith of believers for all of this time that you have guarded its truth and that you have brought us the insight and wisdom, the openness of heart and of eyes through your spirit, that we may hear your voice as we see your word. And Father, we thank you for your word in the flesh, Christ Jesus, for his redeeming work and that we may know you through knowing him. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we go with chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 begins this way. And again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's kind of my preference for doing this type of a study right now, because it's frankly not the English translation that I'm most comfortable with or most familiar with. For me, that would be the New International Version, although my first scripture studies and memorization were in King James. And at that point, let me go ahead and apologize if I'm quoting a scripture from memory I may slip into speaking King James. Um, that's sorry. It's just the wiring of the brain. Forgive me that. If that's some offense that needs to be forgiven, I'm not sure it is. All right. New Living Translation. It's a good academic rendering of the text in a thought for thought translation. So it's fairly well done. Now that's the New Living Translation. I don't recommend the Living Translation. All right, let's see. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul's pretty straightforward with the church at Ephesus. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Now, I'm not going to go back and rehash 4. You're welcome to do that, where he talks about how we are children of the light and how we are to live as children of the light. Here he's applying that in a very practical sense, not just, you know, here's what you are and how you should be, but it should look like something. And the easiest way to figure out what it looks like to live as children of the light is to be imitators of God in everything that we do. It's become trite, but the, uh, what would Jesus do 
is not a bad question when applied properly. Look for the answer. I think all too often we decide Jesus would do whatever it is I decided I wanted to do. Well, if that's true, then the Jesus you worship isn't the God of the universe, and you really need to straighten that out. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Follow the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. What's he saying there? Well, just in those couple of verses, he has laid a tremendous foundation for us to understand our relationship to each other and our relationship to God. Christ pleased God when he offered himself as a sacrifice. Why? Because God loves us. And God, before the beginning of creation, had laid out the plan for how we would be restored, made right with him. And the sacrifice of Christ was the culmination of that plan. Atoning for our sin when he had none. For the simple reason that he loves us. As it says, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Now, the first half of verse 2 says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Now, if you're wondering, what's the example of Christ? Well, that's that whole second part. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. So if we're going to love each other, if we are going to be filled with love and follow the example of Christ, there's no way around it, fellow believers. We are called to sacrifice. We are called to sacrifice for those around us. But he goes on in verse 3. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. So there he's calling out the very obvious moral character of Christians. If you claim to be united with Christ, if you want to live a life of obedience to him, there are certain things that just do not fit in that life. And we can try to rationalize, and we can talk about cultural relevance and all sorts of other garbage, but at the end of the day, the truth is plain. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Now, is that the exhaustive list? Oh, no. He's just thrown out three obvious ones to get their attention. We like to focus on one or two of those, don't we? And I, I don't necessarily mean as an obsession. But I mean, we love to pick on people about their sexual immorality. But how often do we truly address the issue of greed in our churches, in our homes, in our own lives? 
We need to think about these things. He says, such sins have no place among God's people. They just don't fit. They should stick out like a sore thumb because they don't belong there. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those that try to excuse their sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. There's a, an eschatological reference there, the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Isaiah talks about. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. And I'll say there where it says light. Uh, I've seen notes that say that some of the early manuscripts actually use the word spirit there instead of light. So there's kind of a synonymous idea there, that light being the, the light of Christ, the presence of God. For once you were full of darkness, now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Now, we've covered a lot of territory there, and yet it's territory we need to hear. There are certain things in this life that are incompatible with following the will of God. The short list, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, uh, but there's more. There's obscene stories. So, well, God doesn't care if we tell dirty jokes or if we cuss. Um... Ephesians 5, verse 4. Yeah, he does. He says there's no place for it in the lives of believers. So no obscene stories, no foolish talk, no coarse jokes. These are not for you. They're not to be part of your life anymore. Not saying they necessarily are now, but they shouldn't be if they are, and they shouldn't become part of your life later. Why? Because it doesn't show the light of God in your life. You can't say, I live my life for Jesus, and yet pay absolutely no attention to what Jesus has to say about your life. It's not the same thing. So as we talk about living this life that, that shows the presence of God, Again, as usual, he doesn't just give us the don't list, but he gives us a do list. Don't let these things be part of your life, but instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You see, it's about staying focused on God. Even when he talks, again, uh, unpacking the idea of greed a little bit more in verse 5, he says, for the greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Maybe we don't think about that. I follow Christ, but yeah, I really like money. Or I really wish I had more. Or I wish I had theirs. Or, you know, I'm willing to take advantage of people or treat people unjustly or unfairly so that I benefit. Folks, that's greed. And God, through the Apostle Paul here, 
makes it real clear that if you're going to live your life driven by greed, well, that means something about who you are. It means that there is something in your life you have chosen to worship and pursue with who you are. With, as as I like to, well, to paraphrase the Shema or paraphrase the Great Commandment, there's something in your life you like to pursue with all that you are and all that you have. The problem is that's not God. That's that thing you're worshiping as God. It's your greed. God calls us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do we? Because if there's something else in our life, if there's some immorality, impurity, or greed in our life that we are worshiping, that we are putting our efforts and our energies towards, that is the focus of our existence, then we aren't worshiping God. We're worshiping that thing. And that thing, whatever it is, has become an idol. That does not look like a person who is a child of the light and living in the light. Because when we live in the light, no longer are we part of darkness, but we have light from the Lord. So again, with Paul, I encourage you, the end of eight. So live as people of the light. Be different. It is time to be different. For this light within you, produces only what is good and right and true. That's it. The light of God, the spirit of God in your life produces only one type of thing. And that's the thing that is good and right and true. Does that describe your life? Does it describe mine? Verse 10, Paul says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. We got to seek out what determine or seek out what it means to please the Lord. We've got to figure out what that stuff is that pleases the Lord, but not just that we have to do it. Francis Chan is a pastor, a minister right now living over in Hong Kong with his family and and engaged in ministry over there, but uh, speaks at conferences, writes books, numerous things. Francis Chan tells a wonderful illustrative story about telling his daughter to clean her room and equating that to our obedience to God, that God tells us what we're supposed to do in scripture. It's pretty straightforward. If we'll read it, there it is. He's told us. But he said it's like him going to his daughter when she was a teenager and telling her to clean her room. If he were to go back later and her room weren't clean and he were to ask about it, would it be okay for her to respond with this question, or not with a question, but with a response of, well, dad, I, I really appreciated what you said. I, I thought about it for a while. I even wrote it down and memorized it. In fact, after a while of thinking about what it means and imagining what it would look like if I did what you told me to do, I decided to invite some friends over and those friends came over and we all began to read it and study it 
and talk to each other about it. In fact, we even translated it into some different languages to see what it would mean, you know, how the meaning might change a little bit as we looked at it from different language perspectives and, and even discussing, you know, maybe what it looks like in different cultures. Now, in that illustration, what's the problem? The message was clear. Clean your room. There was tremendous effort expended in studying the message. There was no effort expended in doing the message. Folks, God has not hidden from us what his will is. It is all over his word. He gives us clear marching orders. And it's fine that we encourage each other with those marching orders. It's fine that we encourage each other with these admonitions to to pursue what is good and right and true and to live as people of the light. But we're not living as people of the light if all we're doing is studying what it is to be people of the light. If all we're doing is, as, as he talks about, determining what pleases the Lord, but we're not including with that, and it's inherent in verse 10, by the way, that determine means determine and do. Um, if we're just figuring out what God wants from us, but we're not actually doing it, then the truth is we are living in disobedience to God because we're not doing his will. We're just analyzing, studying, memorizing, discussing, but not doing. We must know his word and do his word. We must seek his will and do his will. We must carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Verse 11, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that the ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That's why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You see, there comes a point where we will stand before God. I completely believe the passage, well, all the passages of Scripture, but the passage of Scripture, this is that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. That will happen. I will tell you, it is much better for you if it happens willingly. All of our deeds from darkness will be exposed in the light. But how much better that be the forgiving light of Christ than the light of the judgment seat of God. We will all acknowledge God. Those who in this life acknowledge him and turn to him for salvation have a completely different outcome than those that refuse to acknowledge him in this life but must face him in the next and acknowledge he is God. And we get to choose which group we're in. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light.
live as children of the light, following him obediently. Now, in the next few verses, Paul talks about what it is to live by this power of God, by the power of the light, by the, by the power of God's spirit. He says this in 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Now, to, to back up a little bit there, biblically, when you hear reference to the word fool, a fool is someone who does not acknowledge God. The godless. Don't be a fool. Don't live like a fool. Uh, there's a book out, uh, I think it's Kyle Eidelman. It might be Craig Groeschel. I can't remember off the top of my head. In fact, I think it's Craig Groeschel. Wrote a book called Christian Atheist. And he's talking about those people that claim to be followers of Christ, but live like he doesn't exist. He may be on to something there. It's what Paul is addressing here. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Fools are those that don't acknowledge God. They would be the person that claims to be a Christian, but lives like Christ doesn't exist. That's a fool. They're living like a fool. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Wisdom begins with the knowledge of the Lord. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand. Understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is this Paul's anti-drinking crusade here? No. This is Paul saying, look, there are two ways to live. You can live your life in obedience to the Spirit of God, bringing glory to Christ, or you can live like a fool. And a fool lives to please this world. A fool lives to please his sinful nature and his basest desires. Don't live that way. And living that way is, is partying. It's getting drunk. It's losing control of yourself. When he says, in fact, you ought to be controlled, yes, by the Holy Spirit of God. Not by a chemical that hinders your ability to make sound judgment. Make the most of the opportunities in these evil days. Don't waste your time. Make your time count. Make it count for something. Don't act thoughtlessly. Think about it. Have a plan. Think things through. Make the hard choices now. That's called self-discipline. As you prepare for the future. Understand what the Lord wants you to do. Understand. That means don't just have a knowledge of it, but understand, incorporate it. 
back to that, you know, don't just look at God's command and be aware of God's command. There's a doing element there. Well, that's kind of a, a transition piece in this chapter for Paul, that verses 15 through 20. Let's prepare as we dig into verse 21, because from here, 21 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 33, Paul is going to be giving some direct application within the confines of relationships, specifically husband and wife relationships. And so we're going to look at that. And like I say, next week, as we get into chapter six, we'll look at what living as followers of Christ, as as people seeking to please his spirit, as those living as children of the light, what that looks like lived out in other relationships that happen in our lives. So we'll get to that next week. Let's unpack husbands and wives this week. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 21. I I appreciate that the translation I'm reading out of puts a a break in the passage between 20 and 21. There are many English translations that put that break between 21 and 22. I have a problem with that, and that problem goes back to the Greek. Uh, I think it's it's, uh, poor intellectual honesty to put the break between 21 and 22 because there's a word that appears in 21 that in the Greek is not in chapter verse 22, but the thought in the Greek carries over to that verse. It's a reference back. So I don't think you can split those verses with any real integrity. That's just my opinion. If you're a Bible translator out there and your head's about to explode because I said you didn't have integrity. No, I didn't. I just said, that's my opinion on it. I think those two go together. So here we go. Verse 21. And further. Well, and further. Where's that coming from? Uh, Give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are to seek out what the Lord wants. That we are to encourage each other and sing these songs and, and praise to God making music to the Lord in our hearts, all of these things. And he goes, and further. In other words, and, you know, think of the old Columbo episodes. And another thing, just one thing. And another thing here. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's it. That's the whole verse. But boy, does it weigh heavy there, doesn't it? We go from let's sing song. Let's okay. Let's not get drunk. Let's not do all that immoral stuff. Let's do stuff that pleases God. Let's sing hymns together. Let's praise God with the songs that are in our hearts. It's going to be awesome. Let's give thanks to everything or for everything that God has given us. Thank, thanks, thank God for everything. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son. It's awesome. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wait a minute. We're supposed to submit to one another. Do you know that guy? You want me to submit to him? I mean, I like the idea of him submitting to me, but do you want me to submit to him? Yeah. See, Paul is hitting the church at Ephesus and 
God is hitting us, his church, with some commands here. It doesn't say it's a good idea to submit to one another or, oh, it'd be beneficial for your spiritual growth if you'd submit to one another. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So why should we submit to each other? Because we're going to submit to Christ and he said, do it. Now, this is within the body of believers. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ here. But there's the foundation for everything we are about to move into. As Paul begins talking about living out our faith in Christ in these husband and wife relationships, these children-parent relationships, the the slave and master, our context today, maybe employer-employee relationships. All of that is predicated on, I'm going to surrender my life and I'm going to live obedient to Christ. Now, here's what Christ says, so I'm going to live it. That's foundational. You've got to get that. So verse 21 again, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means to submit. Or if you're acquainted with another translation, I believe it's New Living, New International Version, that's it. New International Version, wives to your husbands. Or wives, submit to your husbands. Actually, verse 22 doesn't have the word submit into it. It refers back to verse 21. So the idea belongs there. You don't get off the hook with that. But wives, this means, so what's it mean if you're a wife? Now, I know there's people that have problems with the second half of Ephesians chapter 5. They think it's uh, um, abusive. They think it's controlling and domineering. There's all sorts of catchphrases today that we could hashtag and all that jazz. Forget that. Here's the deal. Paul is sharing the reality of living out our faith. First, he's talking to all believers, submit to one another as unto Christ. Then he breaks it down and he says, hey, wives, here's what it looks like for you. Now, who's he talking to? The wives, not the husbands. He's talking to the wives. So guys, quit reading your wife's mail. Then he shifts to husbands. Who's he talking to? Husbands. He's not giving wives ammo to use against their husbands. Wives, quit reading your husband's mail. This is Paul talking to the wives and then Paul talking to the husbands. So let's hear what he says. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's not saying your husband is the Lord. But he's saying, if you're going to submit to Christ and follow Christ the way he calls you to, then you're going to have to do what he calls you to. And he says, submit to your husbands. And you may go, well, why? You don't know my husband. Would you submit to that guy? Let's keep going. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. You go, I'm not sure I like that. You don't have to like it but you do have to live with it. But let's keep reading because he explains what Christ being the head of the church looks like. He says, he is the savior of his body, the church. So what you're saying my husband is my savior? No, Christ is your savior. But in your relationship with your husband, 
your husband should be seen to function the way Christ does. In verse 24, he says, As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Or so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Why? Ladies, if you ever want your husband to be the man, the leader, maybe you long for him to be the spiritual leader. If you never look to him to lead, he will never fill that role. If you are not willing to submit to him, he will never be the man that God has designed him and crafted him to be in your relationship for your blessing and for his. This isn't about who deserves what. This is about God saying, hey, submit to me. And in your marriage relationship, here's what that looks like. Now, I know there are people that abuse this passage. I can't control that. But I can call us back to the truth of what God's word says. Now we're going to shift gears. He's talked to the wives. Now he's going to talk to the husbands. And I always find this one really profound as a husband. Because the wives, he says, for the wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But to the husbands, he says something different. Now, does submission apply to the husbands? Yes, it does. Because remember verse 21? Submit to, yeah, that's right, one another. It's not just the wives to the husbands. Husbands, you have to submit to your wife, too. I'm going to let you chew on that one for a little bit. Because we're called to submit to each other in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we're doing it out of reverence for Christ. Really, what we're doing is we're submitting to Christ and living that out in obedience looks like submission to each other. But in verse 25, he says to the husbands, for husbands, this means love your wives. Why would Paul think it's necessary to tell husbands that they need to love their wives? Well, I would say probably because that's a problem. Guys, God created us in general as, as I think, fascinating creatures. He created us to, to be task-oriented. He created us to, to have a drive to go out and kill it and drag it home. But have you noticed that it's real easy for you to focus on one thing? Maybe the thing right in front of you? I like to pretend that I'm not an obsessive person. But if you give me a project to work on, especially if it involves small parts or is meticulous, and you leave me alone to start work on it, I will obsess on it. I will focus on it to the exclusion of everything around me. And I will take care of the details and the, the little intricate pieces. I do this a lot when I'm fixing things, um, like mechanical things that have broken, that sort of thing. It's just, it's part of my wiring to do that. Or maybe for you, it looks different. Maybe for you, it's um, footballs on TV. 
and everything else in your world drifts away and your entire attention is focused on the game. And we all know who's going to win the game, right? The team that scores the most points. Um, so we get hung up, guys, on various things. Now, I don't know what that thing is for you in your life. But a caution from God through Paul. His husbands, hey, this means we got to love our wives. we got to keep our wives in that priority spot. Our relationship hierarchy needs to be our relationship with Christ and then our relationship with our wife. For husbands, this means love means love your wives. Just as, so he's going to tell us how to love our wives, just as Christ loved the church. Oh, hey, it's that whole Jesus and the church relationship thing again. All right. He told the wives that they're supposed to follow me like I'm head of them, like Christ is head of the church, right? Uh, you weren't supposed to be reading their mail. But he says we're supposed to love our wives just like Christ loved the church. What'd that look like? Well, here it is. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, in other words, just like that, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Guys, you want to live this verse? You want to live out what it is to live in the light of God, to live as children of the light? To live out your Christian faith in a very real sense, it looks like loving your wife. And by loving your wife, I mean sacrificing yourself for her. Be the man that makes it easier for your wife to be the woman God created her to be. Wives, be the wife that makes it easier for your husband to be the man God created him to be. And by the way, there's a key hidden in here. Okay, it's not really hidden. There's kind of an obvious key here to having a great relationship as a husband and a wife. Stay focused on Christ. His call on your lives. And wives, if you're living to make your husband a better man in Christ. And husbands, if you're living to make your wives a better woman in Christ and giving of yourselves so the other can be what God is calling them to be, and you're doing it because you're being obedient to Christ, then as each one of you draws closer to Christ, you're drawing closer to each other. And that person you're married to is becoming better and better. What an awesome recipe. 
These verses aren't something to fear or shy away from. Something to dig into and live in these verses. Well, Paul's about to turn all of that on its ear in just a couple of simple verses. In verse 31, he says, As the scriptures say, A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now he's quoting from Genesis there. So he's going way back, early Genesis. He says, This is a great mystery. And we may be going, Yeah, this whole marriage, leave home, united, become one. Yeah, I, I don't, it's a mystery. You got that. No. Paul's saying, This is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What Paul has just done is said for the believer, for the follower of Christ, for those that are the redeemed, that know Christ as their Savior and Lord, that are seeking to live in the light, to live in the Spirit of God, our marriage to one another says something. It is an illustration. If I could, I'll use a word that's not in the passage. It is a witness to the world about Christ and his relationship to the church. Now, that being the foundation of what Scripture says about marriage, can you understand why Oh, say the Old Testament prophet Micah might have said something like, hmm, let's see, how did he phrase it? Oh, yeah. God hates divorce. Now, understand, if you are divorced, I am not picking on you. You need to go before God with that. You know, there are some scripturally allowed reasons for divorce. There are biblical guidelines that pertain to that. Dig into those, live with those. But at its core, marriage is supposed to be an illustration, a witness to the world about what Christ's relationship to the church is. So when we go out there and we mangle that marriage relationship, when we defile that marriage relationship with adultery, when we throw out that marriage relationship like it didn't have any real significance. Can you understand why God isn't happy with that? Why, according to Micah, he hates it? Because we're trampling on the witness of an institution that God set up in the garden. It's been around that long. And it doesn't just exist because it was around that long. It exists because God set it up to show us something and to show the world something. So how can we right now sitting here, no matter what is behind us, how can we, where we are at, get this right? If you're married, here it is. Verse 33. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, 
and the wife must respect her husband. That's the end of that chapter. But there are some huge ideas to unpack there. And we don't have to be comfortable with the ideas. In fact, we shouldn't be necessarily comfortable with what God says to us. It should make us very uncomfortable in all those areas of our lives that we haven't fully surrendered to Him, that we are not living in submission to Him. Those areas of sin we are still battling, or maybe we haven't bothered to battle in those areas and God's starting to convict us about that. None of that should be comfortable but it is no less the loving word of our Savior, given to us to build us up, given to us to make us into the people he created us to be, and allowing us to be the witnesses, proclaiming to a broken, lost, and dying world that so desperately needs healing and life. following him equips us to be those witnesses. So I hope you find the fifth chapter of Ephesians to be challenging. But I also hope you find it to be encouraging and uplifting, because it is all those things. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus to encourage them to strengthen their faith, to say, let's let's get this right. Let's, as some might say today, let's crush it. So, let's not just hear the word, let's do it. Let's grasp hold of it and make it part of our lives. Let's seek out an understanding of God's commands, but an understanding that leads to doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you. I thank you for your love and mercy. That you have forgiven me for my sins, all of my sins. And that you forgive everyone who turns to you. And Father, that you lay out for us a plan. You give us your word and the promptings of your spirit within our heart that we might live lives that glorify you. And we don't have to stumble around in the dark and figure out what that means. You have given us the light of your spirit. You have given us your word that clearly tells us what it is to follow you. Lord, help us to live in that light. That we may bring glory to you. That we may be the witnesses that you call us and invite us to be as your children in this world. As you invite us to follow you as your children. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.